Good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 22, I'll be reading Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, let us see the beauty. Let us appreciate your way in the bread and in the cup, in your son's church. So help me this morning. Teach and teach well. Help us see our history. Help us come to a deeper place concerning the eating and the drinking of the cup and the power of your spirit in the midst of it. As we contemplate again this morning, this most glorious ordinance of the church. To the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Last week in this three-part series on the Lord's Supper, we went back into time. Back into the text. To experience the best we could Jesus eating the Passover meal with his 12 apostles in some obscure upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And we noticed last week, Jesus said to them, do this in remembrance of me. It's because of those words that he spoke twice over the bread and over the cup, that we today, the church, and 500 years ago, and 1,800 years ago, and 2,000 years ago, do this again and again and again and again. The bread and the cup in remembrance of that night and its meaning and its fulfillment the next day. But throughout church history, the meaning of what's actually happening in the eating and the drinking of the cup has been much debated, disagreed over, much tension over that. In other words, the question is, okay, we'll take the bread again, we'll take the cup again, as your people, John and Peter, would do it again and again and again. We will do it again and again and again. And the question is, what is happening? What is this? 
in that upper room that night, Jesus interpreted the unleavened bread to mean this is me, my body given up in death for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. I am the Passover lamb, the sacrifice. Take this bread, eat it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. And in doing that, Jesus is, it's not hard for them, it is for us. They know what it is to go into the temple. Peter and John did that day and offered the lamb. They understand the priesthood that God set out in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament where their job is a pretty bloody job. And after the sacrifice is made, the priest gets his portion to partake of the fellowship of that and the offerer takes it and they eat it all, the sacrifice in fellowship with that animal given its life for them or on behalf of them. And Jesus is saying here is a sign of eating and drinking and connecting you with the fellowship of what I am about to do tomorrow. Okay, that's last week. Jesus said then do this again and again and again and again. Over and over. And that's exactly what they did from the get-go. And we read just two decades later when Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and this is clearly, therefore, be giving the gospel, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he did not leave them without the Lord's command to celebrate the bread in the cup as the new community in this town and in that town and in this town. And so he writes to the Corinthians in the middle of the 50s of the first century, quote, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul comments, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So they did. And this morning, in part two of this series on the Lord's Supper, then, just what I want to do. I want to take us through the history of theology of the Lord's Supper. A quick flyover of the last 2,000 years, and then at the end of this sermon to come to the core of what it means when we together eat the bread and drink the cup. All right, so let's go all the way back to the middle of the first century. We can see it there in 1 Corinthians. that The Lord's Supper early on was celebrated in the midst of eating, in the midst of a meal. And that meal became known as the agape feast. Agape, the Greek word for love. It was, it was the love meal, a love feast of the communion of the people from the middle of the first century. 
Then we get up to the end of the first century, right about the year 100, in a very important writing. It's called the Didache. Some of you have read it, and if you haven't, you can read the entire thing in 20 minutes. And in that, in AD 100, there's a list of church practices and what to do in this early church, non-biblical writing. And they said concerning the cup in it that they were to take the cup and to pray over both the cup and the bread, and that in doing this, the church was to become one bread in God's kingdom, this communion of the saints. About the same time, A.D. 100, the early church father, Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, who was a friend and a student of the apostle John, he wrote this, Make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist. Okay, let's pause. Remember last week when the text says, and Jesus took the cup, took the bread, and he gave thanks. That's the Greek word, eucharisteo. That's where you get the word Eucharist. And this is now beginning when you talk about the bread and the cup together. The term Eucharist in the church is being used now. So he says, make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist, for there is but one body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and but one cup of union with his blood, and one single altar of sacrifice, emphasizing you all are one. Ignatius was saying, that it, in the church, the, the life and, and the, the togetherness and the unity of fellowship revolved around the Lord's Supper. And about 50 years after that, in the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr, he lets us know that by that time now, the love feast or the agape feast is being celebrated separately from the Eucharist, that in between them, when they get the Eucharist, is to follow the reading of Scripture and prayer and the preaching of the Word. And Justin Martyr writes that it was a memorial that through prayer became the body and the blood of Christ in about 150 A.D. Jump forward another 50 years to the end of the second century, right around 200, the early church father Irenaeus lets us know more and more what's going on in the Lord's Supper in the church and in their minds. It's turning more and more into a mystical kind of understanding and experience. He writes this right around the year 200. As the bread which comes from the earth, when it receives the invocation of God, that means he, there's bread in a cup, here we are as a church, and we Invoke God. We call upon God. As the bread in the cup receives the invocation of God, it is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist. Being made of two things, an earthly and a heavenly. And so also our bodies, when they receive the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, but have the hope of resurrection 
unto eternal life. Okay, it just it's pointing towards the mystical more and more, and from that two hundred to three hundred to four hundred, what is also developing at this time is the idea within the church of a priesthood to offer the sacrifice where priest, not just mere presbyter, but the term priest began to be used because what the presbyters the elders, the pastors, what they are doing is invoking God, calling upon God in the midst of the bread and the wine before they partake of the sacrifice. And that gets developed. And you go through the 300s and 400s, if you know who St. Augustine is, which you ought, he died in 430. And you go into the 500s, and by the end of the 500s, right around the year 600, the bishop of Rome, Gregory the Great, he essentially then said, and this is when the doctrine really began to develop, Gregory said and established the doctrine that Christ's body and blood are really... Got to get this. And say the Holy Spirit. We said the body and the blood are really present in the bread and the wine. Therefore, to feed upon the bread and the wine, they nourish and strengthen our spiritual life. We go through the 600s and the 700s and 800s and, of course, we're Christians. We're all Christians. We all have all kinds of ideas are developing. And then there was a big debate at the end of the 800s between two Roman Western Church theologians, Robertus and Retromnus. Robertus, he contended and stressed the real connection between the Eucharistic bread and the cup with the actual historical body of Jesus from Nazareth that was killed on a cross and rose from the dead. He said it this way, quote, The real presence was in the bread and wine. The miracle of that takes place at the words... This is my body. And the elements are changed into the actual body and blood of Christ. Now, Retromnus says, you're nuts. No. But it has symbolic spiritual meaning to it. The physical presence of Christ is not in the body and the blood. But from then on, in the Western church, the doctrine of the mystical, miraculous transformation of the bread and the, the wine won the day. And eventually it became known as transubstantiation. We're, we're used to the word trans nowadays, aren't we? <laughs> I 
born a female, I'm trans, now I'm changed, I am a male. That's what it means. Tran, change, substantiation of the substance of bread and wine is changed. The word transubstantiation was first used in 1134. That's 1,100 years after Christ first initiated this Passover Lord's Supper. Then the Lateran Council of the Church, the Roman Church in the year 1215, officially put it this way, quote, By divine power, bread and wine are transubstantiated into the body and blood. Then, about 350 years after that, at the Council of Trent, which is a major council that went on for 15 years in response to the Protestant Reformation, at the Council of Trent, they defined transubstantiation this way, quote, it is the changing of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood of Jesus Christ. The appearances of bread and wine alone remaining, meaning the substance is not, it really is not bread and wine. That's why growing up as a Roman Catholic kid, it was a mortal sin. A mortal sin is a sin that kills your salvation. It kills your new birth, and you have to get rebirthed again by, by penance. To miss mass was a mortal sin without any good reason. And you just said, I'm just going to skip it. You need to essentially get that wiped away, or you're going to die and go to hell. Why? Because the Sunday, once a week, Sabbath, church going wasn't merely going to church. It was centered in the Eucharist. What's, that's what's, what's happening. Yeah, you got liturgy behind it, some, some gospel reading, some Old Testament reading, some epistle reading, some songs you sing, a little homily, but all of that is around the center of when the ordained priest in your midst stands up turns his back to you, the crucifix is in front of him, lifts up the bread and the cup and recites the words in Latin, or since the 60s English here, this is my body. And a miracle happened. The bread was no longer actually bread. It was the human flesh of Jesus. And the wine no longer wine, it was his actual blood. And then they would serve the people. That was my growing up. Here's how the 20th century Roman Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott puts it, quote, Christ becomes present 
in the sacrament of the altar by the transformation of the whole substance of the bread into his body and of the whole substance of the wine into his blood. The transformation is called transubstantiation. The power of consecration resides in a validly consecrated priest only. The worship of adoration must be given to Christ who is present in the Eucharist. It follows from the wholeness and permanence of the real presence that the absolute worship of adoration is due to Christ present right there in that building now. After the priest invoked the words, he is there in the Eucharist. It's one of the reasons why in my growing up as a Roman Catholic, we, the lay people, the laity, the non-ordained priesthood, were not allowed to drink of the wine because it wasn't wine. Just think about the hundreds of millions of persons every week grabbing that wine. How much is going to be spilled? Come on. Especially when second grade, you get to start to do it. How much is going to be spilled of Christ's actual blood. Back then, I know they have changed, but we weren't allowed to touch the bread. We would stick our tongues out, and the priest would put it there very carefully, and the altar boy would follow with this little goldish kind of piece of metal with a handle and put it under the chin, just in case the priest's hand got shaky and, and the bread falls, because we're not talking about bread. It has been transubstantiated. It is the body of Christ. Right, let me just summarize where we've been so far then. This is, this is trying to be as, I try to present this as honestly as I can, that if there's any Roman Catholic who actually believes this, they would say, yes, you've represented correctly. This is how it works. The baker bakes the bread and the wafers unleavened. The winery produces the wine, it, it shows up over on the campus of whatever church parish, and that's all it is. It is only bread, and it is only wine. And then they bring it into the sanctuary, and it's ready to go for Mass. And during the Mass, when the ordained priest recites the words, this is my body, it is no longer actually bread and wine. It has been transubstantiated. The substance of bread and wine has changed into the very substance of Jesus' human flesh and blood. While this is how it's said, in the deeper theology, and this comes from Aristotle in his reasoning where they got it. But only the accidents, that doesn't mean a car wreck, philosophically accidents, no, chair, what is that, maroon? These chairs are maroon. They could be blue, they could be yellow. You can change the accidents of the chair. It doesn't change the chairness, the substance of chairness. So they would say only the accidents, meaning only, yeah, the, it still looks just like it came from the bakery or from the winery. St to your eye, it is wine 
It is bread, but it's not. The substance has changed. The accents or the appearance, the taste of it, the smell of it remain the same. Okay, let it sit. All right. Then comes the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, which was a back-to-the-Bible movement, really. So I foundationally for the Protestant Reformation, it had to do first and foremost with the doctrine that was, what was embedded in the Roman Western Church that the tradition, the theology already developed is officially by the church is on a par with the Scripture, equal to. Therefore, the Scripture can undo what the church has said. This is what sola scriptura refers to. Wrong. The Protestants and the Reformers, they loved church history. They paid attention and read. Okay. But the Scripture could challenge what the church said if the Scripture seems to be very clear that they were wrong. Like on the doctrine of how one is saved where the church officially taught. That you are saved by grace and your faith in Jesus plus works. I said, no. It's crystal clear that we're justified by faith. Apart from any works. Okay. We, there are some core issues of the Reformation, right? One of the other core issues was the Lord's Supper. It was the Eucharist. All the Reformers rejected transubstantiation. But Martin Luther, one of the main Reformers, insisted that the words, this is my body, must be interpreted Literally. And so his view, and thus the Lutheran church's view to this day, is that, first and foremost, the bread and the wine, they, they, they are not actually Jesus' body and blood. Okay, Rejecting tran, change of the substance, transubstantiation. But... In the bread, and with the wine, and as the priest recites the words, Christ's physical body and blood are actually present in, under, and around the bread. And the cup. Physical. In other words, like water is present in, it's present with, present under a sponge. The water is not the sponge. Christ's physical body is not the bread. Or his blood is not the wine. 
But his physical blood and body are present in, with, and under. Latin, con. Con, substantiation. Not transubstantiation. In, with, and under the bread is water. Is in, under, and with the sponge, though the water is not the sponge, and the sponge is not the water. But where you find the sponge, there's the water. And where you find the Eucharist, there is Christ's physical body. Well, his contemporary reformer, Zwingli from Switzerland, just said, Martin, you're nuts. And Zwingli said, Martin, you can't read it that way. When Jesus said, this is my body, clearly he meant it signifies, it represents my body. Okay, so you got these two strains of theology over the Lord's Supper going from the Reformation. You have the, what is technically called the Reformed people. And Calvin would come after Zwingli. And, okay, over there, Switzerland and some of... England, etc. And then you got the German thing going on with Luther and his sidekick, Melanchthon. It's producing Lutheranism. I think Zwingli in the Reform Movement is much closer to the way we ought to understand it, which essentially teaches that the bread and the wine are symbols of the real, the literal body of Christ that was crucified 2,000 years ago. And that same body raised from the dead and that same body of our Lord ascended to heaven. That's what these are representing. But as we eat them, there is the real spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit in a unique and a special way for the feeding of our souls as we partake of the bread and of the wine, which are the emblems that the Lord is there. And we do that particularly in the context of the local church after the scriptures read, after the scripture is taught and preached, and then we partake of the bread. This is my body. Does not mean it is the physical, limited aspect of Jesus' body of the incarnate God who became a human being in the womb of Mary. It doesn't mean that his physical body or his physical blood materialize, whether transubstantiated or consubstantiated, that they're there with the bread and under the bread. So, I just, I think... Here's where I'm coming from. The most natural way to understand a person who grabs something, picks it up, and says, this is my body. It's clearly that he's saying, this represents my body. Not that... See the bread? It has just turned into my actual body. 
As Jesus sat there in the upper room and he picked up that unleavened bread with what? With the hands of his body, picked up something that is not his body and said, this is my body. Clearly he's meaning this represents my body. And you'll get it after I do what I'm going to do tomorrow. Represents. No, think about it. Even that day in that upper room, they also had lamb. And there were thousands of lambs all over Jerusalem being eaten that night on the Passover. And they do it every year, and they've done it this past year. And nobody thinks that we're going to go kill the lamb, and that means that this lamb on this day, 1,400 years after the Passover actually happened, that this lamb is one of those lambs. No one thinks that way. They think, because God told them to think, do this in remembrance. Kill your lamb but this is not a lamb they, where they took blood and put it on their doorpost and there was really God going around with a death angel killing people. But he'll pass over your house because you're eating the lamb like he actually did that one night in history. No one thinks this lamb is one of those actual lambs killed. You don't think that way. You can see it. This is my family. Isn't it? Is that my family? What are you, a nut? Or do you think I'm a nut? No one here thinks that I'm that crazy where I think that my wife and my six kids are actually a piece of paper. You don't think that way. You know it's an imprint. It's a representation. The words, this bread, is my body was intended to mean that this bread represents not that this bread has somehow turned into my body but if one argues it means the bread turned into the body because Jesus said is well then wouldn't you expect same meaning from the words over the cup when he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood is the predicate nominative of is is not blood it's the covenant no one thinks that the cup turned into a document, a contract that God made. Everyone understands that cup, representing his blood, represents God's covenant, his new covenant. I want you to turn to John 6 now in your Bible. Spend the rest of our time there. Because Roman Catholics, if you get a smart one who knows their theology, will 
often point to John chapter 6, verses 43 to 63, to argue that the eating of Christ's physical body is precisely the point of the Lord's Supper. They will say, even though this is not at the Lord's Supper, it's at least six months beforehand, before he gets to Jerusalem, it was pointing to the Lord's Supper and what he would do when Jesus said in John 6, starting with verse 48, I am the bread of life. Now remember the context. Jesus fed physical food to the 5,000 on one side of the lake of Galilee. The next day, where is he? He didn't get in the boat with the others, and a bunch of men, women got in boats and went across the sea, and others walked around to try to find Jesus. And Jesus says, you're only looking for me because you got your bellies filled with physical food. That's really the context and when Jesus starts to teach them. But let's pick up with verse 48. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my Flesh, And, of course, they're starting to lose it. Look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God or the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And then Jesus notices his own disciples He's starting to get really confused about what he's saying. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Duh. Who, who can listen to it? So Jesus gives them the key, the key to interpreting his speech and what he's doing right now so that they don't get it all messed up. Verse 63, it is the Spirit, guys, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, don't get hung up on the references to eating my flesh and drinking my blood. I'm speaking figuratively. He's saying I am referring to a spiritual action of eating, drinking, 
not a physical one. Back in the 1500s, Martin Luther and Ehrlich, Zwingli, they got together and they had a public debate over the Lord's Supper. And, and, and Luther points to John 6 and he quotes it, verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, Zwingli, unless you drink His blood, you have no life in you. And then Luther turned around and he wrote on the board, this is my body. And then he circled the to be verb. Is esteem in Greek. Swingley so got up and he pointed to John 6, 63. Martin, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. I think Zwingli's right. Stay there in John 6. Let's move back a little bit further, but what he said before, what we just read. Feel more of the context. Jesus said, starting with verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes. What does that mean? Obviously. Like he spoke before, food perishes. You eat it. You eliminate it out your body and it perishes. He's talking about physical food. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. Never perishes. Endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For why is that? On Him, the Son of Man, Jesus talking about Himself, on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God. Here it is. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. And so they said to Him, Well then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, here it is, this is what's going to start on. Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And God fed them physical food for 40 years to keep them alive. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I Say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Clearly, he's, it's God, my Father. It is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He calls himself the bread of life. He's the one who came down from heaven. God Himself. How? Through the womb of Mary. He became incarnate, enfleshed. One of us. And He says, that one Himself, the only incarnate bread of life is to be welcomed in your hearts. Received. Believed in. And if you do, he says, your hunger, your thirst will be quenched. And in the text, what is the eating and what is the drinking? It's coming and it's believing. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The eating and the drinking refer to spiritual acts of the soul drawing near, close to Christ. In response, as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians, the God who created the world and said, let there be light, is the one who has shined the light in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what happened? We came. And all over the New Testament, it's called being called. Come. And in the larger context, Jesus says, whom the Father has given me, will come. That's what it is to feed upon the Son of Man. And never hunger. To drink His blood believing and never thirst. Zwingli is much closer to the meaning than Martin Luther on this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so when Jesus said in John 6, 53 that we must eat 
his flesh and drink his blood. He did not mean that literally we are to eat human flesh like a cannibal and drink his physical human blood. But his words were spirit in life. And the meaning is, he's saying we are to feed upon the meaning of him who came down from heaven. Him who was incarnate, which means in flesh. On the meaning of that mystery. To contemplate his true humanity. Who's the one whom the Father sent? That's the Lord's Supper. Contemplating. He's one of us. He's going to die the next day for us. You contemplate that, and particularly his sacrificial death. And so, hopefully, next week, who knows? It's a crazy world. What is legal and what is not legal. But hopefully next week we will all be gathered together. Those that could make it. Hopefully we will celebrate as, therefore, this local church, the Lord's Supper, together. And the point is this, that when we do, whether next week or the week after or whenever the next time is, when we partake of the bread, when we partake of the cup, we first allow the word of God to be preached and taught and to cause our affections towards Christ to be emboldened and, and nourished with the special presence of Christ as we turn then and partake of his body given for us and of his blood shed out in death for the purchase of our salvation. And as we do, as often as we do it, we are remembering, we are cherishing, we are proclaiming Christ's death for our salvation and the salvation for all who will come to him and believe in him, and we continue to do it until he returns. Let's pray. So, Father, again, cause us to yearn. As a church here, so many thousands of your local assemblies are yearning to meet again as a whole and partake of the Lord's Supper. In the contemplation of this sermon this morning, and over the next week, draw our attention, draw our affections, our heart, our desires to yearn to eat and to drink of the cup together as those called out of darkness into the freedom of the children of light to the glory of your name.